right at the start of this series, I mentioned that there were various schools of thought and interpretation regarding the book of Revelation. And many of those differences really come to a head in chapter 20. Uh, The differences are there all the way through much of the book, but it really is some of the things that are mentioned in this chapter which form the substance of many of the disagreements that there are amongst Christian people, amongst evangelicals, about our understanding of the book of Revelation. And on those issues, which I'm going to go into a little bit this evening, hopefully not in so much detail that it loses everybody, but in sufficient detail to give you um, a basic grasp of what's going on here, um, If you want to be able to spend some time looking through these issues uh, yourself, uh, this particularly is where two books that I've mentioned previously uh, really come into their own and will be a very significant help to you. I've mentioned before the, the commentary on the book of Revelation, a commentary being a book which just takes you systematically through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, And that's the one, More Than Conquerors, by William Hendrickson. But I'd also recommend this little book, The Bible on the Life Hereafter, also by Hendrickson. And this is not so much a commentary on Revelation, uh, but a book sifting through all of these differences of opinion uh, about the end times and how we should interpret things, um, particularly in relation to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and some of the things that we'll be looking at in this chapter. So, The Bible on the Life Hereafter by William Hendrickson, and another one, uh, actually possibly this is just slightly better, maybe, it's a matter of opinion, The Momentous Event by W.J. Greer. Uh, two books that do pretty much the same kind of thing. Um, I would get them both if I were you and read both of them. Uh, very, very good, very, very helpful. Um, depending on... Uh, which print run you're on. The covers might not look the same as that, but the content will be there. So very, very good. I'll leave those out on the front, and if you've not come across those before, you can have a little glance at them. You'll find copies of those secondhand, almost for peanuts on, uh, on Amazon and places like that online. You'll pick them up, no problem at all. Revelation chapter 20. Satan is going to be overthrown one day. Satan is overthrown. (coughs) Now, one of the things we looked at right at the beginning of the series was um, one of the very significant differences between a view that's held by many about the book of Revelation and how we should understand it and the view that I've been uh, been giving you uh, over these recent months. Uh, There are those who begin at chapter 1 of Revelation and they read it through almost as if it's a running commentary on the history of the world. And so it begins in John's day, and there are seven letters to seven churches, and that's clearly in the age of the New Testament. But then as you read through the book of Revelation, you're actually being taken through chronologically, sequence after sequence after sequence, all the way through Earth's history, until eventually you get right to the end when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And when you view the book of Revelation like that, you find yourself scratching your head saying, now, hmm, February 2017, where exactly are we 
in this long sequence of events? Where do we fit in? Uh, what has already happened? What is yet to happen in the future? And, well, you can tie yourself up in all kinds of knots trying to fathom those things out. Indeed, people do tie themselves up in all kinds of knots trying to work that out. You've got letters, you've got the throne room, you've got a sealed book, you've got seven seals, seven trumpets, a little book with two witnesses, the woman, the beast, seven bowls, the harlot and the beast. Where, where are we in that long sequence of events? Well, we don't hold that view. Uh, rather, that all of these sequences, these little uh, pictures, these little images, the ones that I've mentioned, the throne room, the sealed book, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and so on, all of these things are all talking about the same thing, but looking at it from a different point of view, looking at it from a different perspective, looking at it from a different angle. All of these things are talking about the whole period of the Christian church, from the day that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven to the day that he will return. And all of these things are happening continuously throughout the history of the Christian church. And so they're not sequential one after the other, but they're rather running in parallel with each other. And all of these things have a bearing upon our experience as being a Christian in the world today. All of them are relevant to us today. We're to view all of these things as helping us to understand the kind of things that we will experience as Christian people and to see things from God's point of view, to see things from heaven's point of view. Now, if you hold the other view that all of these things are sequential, then you would come to the conclusion that when you get to Revelation chapter 20, <clears throat> we might not quite be able to work out where 2017 is in all of these things, but clearly Revelation chapter 20 is something still in the future somewhere. How far in the future? Who knows? But it's something over there that hasn't occurred yet. This binding of Satan in verse 2. That's, that's something that is yet to happen in the future. This period of a thousand years. That's something which is yet to happen. And it's going to begin at some point. And at some point in the future God is going to bind Satan and all the other things that we read in this chapter, they're all going to happen at some point in the future. You'll find many who hold to that view of this book and of this chapter. And some who have that view, they will tell you that what's going to happen is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back to the earth, but that's not going to be the day when he judges everybody. Uh, what will happen is he will return and he's going to reign on the earth physically from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of the Bible, the Jerusalem of Israel in the Middle East. 
And from there, he will reign for a thousand years. And after that comes the final judgment. When he judges everybody. And during that time of that thousand years, uh, Christian people are going to grow and grow in number and in influence and reign with him as part of that kingdom. It'll be an earthly kingdom with Christ reigning from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And you'll find Christians who sincerely hold that view. I'm going to tell you that's not how to view this chapter. All of Revelation, up to and including chapter 20, is dealing with the same thing. It's dealing with the experience of Christ's church on the earth during the time between Christ's ascension into heaven, which is recorded in the scriptures, and the day when Christ returns. And all of God's people, in all generations, will know the, the reality of these things that are in this book. It's applicable to all believers all the time. And we view in these chapters the same spiritual realities, but from different viewpoints and different perspectives. All of them telling of the many difficulties and tribulations that Christ's persecuted people will endure on the earth. All of them showing us that when believers die, they will go into the immediate presence of Christ. And so that for them, death actually is a great victory. All of them show that God does and will move in righteous judgment against all who oppose him and who oppose his people. That's been the constant theme throughout the Revelation. And all of them show that Christ is and will be victorious and that the saints are secure in Christ forever. Now, I just want to speak to you on four headings about chapter 20. And some of these are very important things for us to see and understand. I want to speak first of all about this issue of the 1,000 years that are mentioned here, or the millennium. What's with this 1,000 years? Well, uh, my very strong conviction and uh, unshakable belief is that these thousand years are symbolic, not literal. It's not talking about a literal 1,000-year period. All of the things that we've been seeing in Revelation, in these images and these numbers, they're all symbolic, and this is no different. It's figurative. <clears throat> it's been explained as a number that God would use. Why 1,000? Well, some have suggested, think of it this way, uh, 1,000, how do you get to 1,000? Well, you can get to it by multiplying 10 by 10 by 10. The number 10 being a number for completeness in the Bible. Uh, there, are three, there are two numbers in the scriptures which are divine numbers, which are used to speak of God. There's the number three. God is three persons in the Godhead. There's the number seven that keeps cropping up in Revelation the seven spirits of God, which is actually a figurative way of talking about the perfect nature and completeness of the Holy Spirit. 
and you add 7 and 3 and you get the number 10. A number in the Bible for completeness. God gave 10 commandments. So the number 10 signifies completeness. And here you have 10 times 10 times 10. A cube, if you like, of completeness. But what does it represent is the more important thing. It represents this same period of time that the church will exist in this world. The current gospel age in which we live is what is represented by the thousand years. It's a divinely ordained period of time, which isn't a thousand years. No one knows how long it's actually going to be. It's only known to God himself, but it's symbolic of this time. Now, some suggest, as we've said, that the Lord Jesus Christ will actually return to the earth before this thousand years begins. But as we read through the chapter, we discover that actually there's no mention of Christ returning until after the thousand years, at verses 21 and 22. It's after the thousand years that Christ returns. So to say that Christ returns before those thousand years in order that he can reign on the earth for a thousand years, that actually isn't found in the Bible. I believe with many others that that's a misinterpretation of this thousand years. These thousand years are now. You're in it. This is the thousand years. It's happening now. Today. Because it's a symbolic figure, speaking about the whole age of the Christian church till Christ returns. So the first thing is to understand that the thousand years is now. But that prompts us to ask a question. If the thousand years is now, that must mean that Satan is already bound, verse 2. Because it says that God laid hold of Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So if the thousand years is not something that happens in the future sometime, if the thousand years is the age of the church, then according to verse 2, Satan is already bound. Because that happened at the beginning of the church age. So that leads us to a conclusion that the binding of Satan has already happened. It's already happened. Now you look around the world and you look at the pictures on your TV and you listen to the headlines week after week and you think to yourself, Satan has been bound with all this stuff going on doesn't seem to add up you see we have news headlines that do so they do show some devastating examples of man's inhumanity against his fellow man but we don't all behave like that do we because satan has been bound can you imagine what this world would be like if everyone behaved 
like the worst things that appear on your TV screen? Those awful atrocities that some people bring themselves to commit? Could you imagine what this world would be like if we all behaved like that? But we don't. Because Satan is bound. God has set a limit and a restraint upon Satan in this world. But Satan is, all bound in a, is also bound in a much more significant way than that. Satan was bound by the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. That's where Satan was bound. Now, we can prove that from turning to the scriptures. And so I just want to go through a few scriptures with you. First of all, we're in Matthew chapter 12. I'm reading from verse 25. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 25. Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself won't stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Some of you are familiar with these words. Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? The Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world to plunder the kingdom of Satan. He has come to snatch people and to rescue people from the grip of the evil one. He's come to save you. And how has he done that? Well, he's bound the strong man. Satan has been bound by Christ at the cross. Satan is defeated at the cross. Colossians and chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements which was against you. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Where did he do that? He did that at Calvary into Hebrews and chapter 2 and verse 14. We'll read two more verses. There are others on the screen. You can jot down and have a look at them for yourself later on. But Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Where did Christ destroy the devil? He did it at Calvary through his own death. That's where Satan was bound. And that's why we're happy to say that we're in the middle of the thousand years because it began at the cross where Christ bound Satan. We'll look at one more verse. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 31. John 12, beginning at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. 
And if I am lifted up from the earth, what's he talking about? He's talking about his death on the cross. I will draw all peoples to myself. When was the ruler of this world cast out? At the cross, at Calvary. That's where Satan was bound so that Christ could be victorious over him and that you could be set free from his clutches. That's when it all began. And that's what's being spoken of there in verse 2. Satan has been bound by the death of Christ. Now he hasn't been stopped completely, not yet. His day is coming. But he hasn't been stopped completely. Now if you read those two books I mentioned before, um, both Greer and Hendrickson explain it in two different ways. Uh, Greer puts it this way, Satan is like Al Capone who ruled Chicago from Chicago jail. He's bound. He was having some limited influence, but it wasn't like being out on the streets with his machine gun anymore. Hendrickson says, Satan is like a bound wild dog on a chain. Within the area that he can roam on the chain, he can do great damage, but he can never go any further than the chain permits him because he's been bound and his reach is restricted and the effect that he can have is greatly restricted and Christ has bound Satan and he did it at the cross. Satan is bound. Verse 3 talks about the nations being deceived no more. Some people imagine that during this future 1,000 years, there's going to be this huge Christianizing of the whole world during that time. Well, that's not quite how I see it. But we have missionaries and those who represent mission organisations coming to our church regularly. And they represent places from all around the globe. Albania, Romania, Africa, Papua New Guinea, Sri Lanka. And all around the world, Christ is conquering and saving. There's no place on the face of the earth now where Satan is so able to deceive men and women that no one gets saved. And it's talking about the gospel spreading all across the globe. The gospel has spread and is spreading all across the world just as Jesus commanded and commissioned his disciples to go and do. Go and preach. Because Satan is bound now. Go and preach. Because you'll be able to go into every nation and peoples of all tribes and languages and tongues will come to saving faith in Christ. Because Satan's no longer able to deceive all the nations. His power has been seriously withdrawn from the world. And then... The end of verse 3 and also from verse 7 into the beginning of verse 9. It does seem to talk very clearly that right at the very end, but we don't know when that's going to be, but right at the very end there will be a brief season of severe persecution against the church. After these things he must be released for a little while at the end of verse 3. 
Verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll go out and deceive. But you notice that even though he gathers, and even though he's preparing for this huge onslaught, he goes up on the breadth of the earth, surrounds the camp of the saints, and he's just about to pounce, and fire pours down from heaven and devours. And God acts again. And the names of Gog and Magog that we read there, they're taken from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, It's talking about an event recorded there. It was the last great assault against Old Testament Israel. And this will be the last great assault against the New Testament church. It's just really a repetition of the things that we've read previously, like the battle of Armageddon that's going to take place. It's just Satan gathering all his forces against the Lord's people and against Christ. But ultimately, as we've seen previously, he's a defeated foe. Well, next question. What of living and reigning with Christ and this first resurrection in verses 4 to 6? Because some people think... It's talking about this thing in a thousand years, way in the future, and we're all going to reign with Christ in some earthly uh, empire, earthly kingdom. People who hold that view, they suggest that where it talks about the first resurrection, uh, it's the physical resurrection of dead Christians in order that they can reign with Christ during that period. It's the end of verse 5. This is the first resurrection. That Christians will be raised to reign during that thousand years. But that would necessitate a second resurrection, sometime later for everybody else. At the end of the thousand years. But the Bible teaches very clearly that there will only ever be one resurrection. We'll just look at John chapter 5 and verse 28 for now, just as one example. John 5 and verse 28. And Jesus is speaking. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The hour is coming in which all will be raised. It's just a single event when the great resurrection occurs. And John sees in verse 4, people on thrones and... But what we read there is the souls of the saints reigning with Christ. Now, we've seen that in all the previous chapters and all the previous things. Again and again, we're reminded and encouraged that despite the terrible things that are happening to the church here on earth, whenever a Christian dies, they go to be with Christ and they reign with him. And verse 4 is just saying exactly the same thing. It's not saying a new message. It's repeating one that's already been here 
in Revelation. If you're a Christian, when you die, your soul goes to be with Christ and you will reign with him until the time of his return. And as we saw a few weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians 4, all those who are with Christ will return with Christ when Christ comes. And there'll be a great resurrection. And all of God's people will meet in the air. The Bible's very clear on all of these things as we piece all the verses together. What's this first resurrection that's spoken about then at verse 5? If it isn't referring to Christians being raised so that they can reign with Christ for a thousand years from Jerusalem, what's it talking about? Well, it's simply talking about the resurrection that you have had already if you're a Christian. There are some verses on the screen, Colossians 3 verse 1, Ephesians 2, 4 and 7. It's just talking about us being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. You who once were dead in your trespasses and sins, he has made alive. You've been raised with him. All of those verses talking about the fact that you've been raised to newness of life now. That's your position before God now. And that in the book of Revelation is the first resurrection. You've been born again by God's spirit. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You're no longer in darkness. You're now alive in the light. That's the first resurrection that Revelation talks about there. It's a spiritual resurrection. It's the new birth. So that when the body dies, we're still alive with Christ. The rest of the dead know nothing of this. What's the second death that's mentioned in this passage? This is the second death it talks about the end of verse 14 the second death well the chapter concludes as with other images that John has seen with the coming final judgment at the return of Christ this is no different to all the images that have gone before although the amount of detail that is given begins to increase now we see in verse 10 that Satan will reach his end and he will receive his just reward. He's currently bound, but the day is coming where he's going to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. And there they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that will be the end of Satan's reign at the final judgment at the return of Christ. And then John sees this great judgment day, beginning at verse 11. He sees a great white throne, God is sat on it, and everyone, small and great, standing before God, you'll be there, I'll be there, everyone will be there. And books are opened, and for those who are in the book of life, 
there is safety and security because there is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus if you're in the book of life. But for the rest, they're judged according to their works. The end of verse 13. Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Uh, Hades, we speak of Christian believers when they die, their souls go to be with Christ in heaven. Hades is the place spoken of where the souls of those who are not in Christ go to. They don't go to purgatory. They go to torment. It's the opposite of paradise that the dying thief was going to go to. All of those things receive the judgment. And that is called the second death. So you see, Revelation talks about a first death and a second death. And it talks about a first resurrection and a second resurrection. And this is what I want to leave you with this evening. The first death. The majority of us in this room, probably all of us in this room, will experience the first death. It's the death of our earthly bodies. But if you're in Christ, you haven't really died. Because you go to be with him. Is that your position? We talked about the first resurrection. That's being made alive in Christ when you come to saving faith. Have you been saved? Have you been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned to him in repentance and faith? Put your trust in him and been born again? There's another day of resurrection coming when every single one of us will rise and stand before the Lord. But where would you be on that day? Because there's a second death which is receiving from God the judgment and the punishment that your sins deserve. And outside of Christ, you'll have to pay that all by yourself. Won't be a good place to be. But if you're in Christ Jesus, the second resurrection holds no fear because you'll be raised with a new body fit for heaven. You will meet Christ in the air with all the saints who've gone before. And we will reign with Christ in glory forever. There's a great day approaching when Christ will judge the world. Where will you stand on that day? Will you be found to be in him safe at rest for all eternity? Or are you thinking to yourself, I'll take my chances. I really wouldn't if I were you. We're going to sing a hymn.